This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Good morning and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I'll be your host. Thank you so much for making time to explore the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode 223, entitled, Defining Yahweh. Yes, we are moving to a new series where we look at the most important names, titles, and designations for the true God. And of course, it seems natural to start with Yahweh, the proper name for the God of Israel. So yes, in this week's episode, we're going to explore Yahweh. Yahweh is the only true God and the God of Jesus. Jesus, of course, has a God, and that God has a name. And it seems that that God's name is Yahweh. We get Yahweh from the four Hebrew consonants, Yod, He, Vav, He. And these four consonants are called the Tetragrammaton, the four written letters. Now, Yahweh as a divine name appears somewhere around 6,828 times in the Hebrew Bible. It's not used in the New Testament because the New Testament was originally written in Greek. So, some questions that I'd like to explore in this episode include, who is Yahweh? Is Yahweh the Father alone? Is Yahweh even the correct pronunciation of the divine name? And how does Yahweh relate to the promised Messiah, the anointed king of God's kingdom? So let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is basic facts about Yahweh within the Hebrew Bible. The first fact is that Yahweh is the initiator of the covenant. We can see this pretty clearly in Exodus chapter 20. I'll read the first four verses. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. It's Exodus 20, verses 1 through 4. So we have the introduction of a covenant formula. Yahweh is the creator of the covenant, and he describes himself as the one who has rescued and redeemed Israel. He is the God who introduced himself as the one who has brought them out of Egypt. And then he says that, I am Yahweh your God, you are not allowed to have any other gods before me. You can't make any idols. You can't have any likeness of anything in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. So Yahweh wants to portray himself as the true God, and you can't have any other gods beside him, whether they be idols or likenesses. We also note from the Hebrew Bible that this God, Yahweh, is the creator, the one creator. And the best passage to indicate this is Isaiah 44, 24, which says, 
Thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer and the One who formed you from the womb, I, Yahweh, am the Maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. That's Isaiah 44, 24. Pretty clear. Yahweh is trying to demonstrate that he is a single person. He is the one who redeemed them, the one who formed them from the womb, the maker of all things. Those are singular verbs. And he describes himself with singular pronouns. I, Yahweh, and then he describes the act of creation as an act that he did by himself. He says, I stretched out the heavens by myself and spread out the earth all alone. So clearly, Yahweh is the creator, but he is the one creator, the only creator. He created all alone by himself without anyone else there. So only one person created the heavens and the earth, and that one person is Yahweh. And yet we can also see in poetic literature within the Hebrew Bible the fact that God is described as creating through the personification of his speech and the personification of his wisdom. So in Psalm 33, 6, it says, By the word of Yahweh the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Psalm 33, 6. So there we have Yahweh creating with his word, that's his speech, his utterance, and it's paralleled in this verse to refer to the breath of his mouth. So God's word is not some sort of conscious person alongside Yahweh. God's word is his breath. That's his speech, his utterance. And so we could see that God uses his word in a personified way to create. Yahweh created, but God created with his word, meaning that God spoke creation into existence, just like we see in Genesis chapter 1. We can also see the personification of God's wisdom in a passage like Proverbs 3.19, which says, Yahweh, by wisdom, founded the earth, by understanding he established the heavens. That's Proverbs 3.19. So wisdom there is the personification of God's wise interaction with and instruction to his creation. And in the verse, it's paralleled with God's understanding. But it's pretty clear that it's Yahweh who is the one who founded the earth and established the heavens, but he did it through the vehicle of his wisdom, of his understanding. But again, wisdom and understanding are not conscious persons alongside Yahweh. They are personifications. And so it is true to say that Yahweh created the heavens all alone and by himself. And it's also true to say that God created with his word and with his wisdom. Because word and wisdom are not persons. They're personifications of God's attributes. They're poetic ways of describing that God created with his powerful speech and with his wise understanding. Let's move to our second point today, asking the question, is Yahweh the correct pronunciation of the divine name? So I'll have to warn listeners here, we're going to have to go into a little bit of technical Hebrew grammar. So if you are not familiar with Hebrew, I apologize if some of this is going to go over your head, but maybe you'll be able to follow along the arguments. So the correct pronunciation 
was actually lost from Jewish traditions during the Middle Ages. Now, in the Second Temple period, which is the period that involves most of the New Testament, but the centuries prior to that, the divine name was not spoken publicly because it was a sacred taboo. It was seen as a sacred name that needed to be respected at all cost. So the divine name was not spoken publicly, but it was still used privately. We do have evidence that it was used privately and that it was written down. We have inscriptions and various writings that demonstrate that the divine name was still being spoken. It wasn't spoken publicly, it wasn't spoken in the reading of scripture, but it was still used privately. So the pronunciation was not lost at that particular time. It was lost by the Middle Ages, many centuries later. So we have the divine name with the four consonants Yod, He, Vav, He, and scholars of the Hebrew language and the relevant Semitic languages generally think that this divine name is a verbal form from the root verb, which is hey yod hey, which is actually the verb to be. It's a verb which means to be or the verb to exist. And so we have a divine name that has lengthened from this verbal form. And the proposed verbal form fits very closely with the verbal paradigm of the hifil. And in Hebrew, the hifil is the causative active form of the verb. So the divine name, however we want to pronounce it, would indicate the one who causes that which is to come into being, which is likely a nod at his role as the creator. So scholars have suggested there is a lot of evidence that the divine name draws upon the verb to be, because it has a lot of similar letters. Now, Hebrew scribes refrained from using the divine name when they were writing out the various manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible. And so instead of using the divine name, they would use a circumlocution. They would use either Adonai, the word for Lord, or they would speak Elohim, the word for God. And this is what is called the Koray and the Ketiv. The Koray and the Ketiv is a literary aspect of the Hebrew Bible to where there is a word that is written, that's the Ketiv, but instead of reading what is written, you actually say something different. And so the divine name is the most popular Koray Ketiv in the Hebrew Bible because what is written is the divine name, but Pious Jews are not going to say that, so they are told to say the Koray, usually Adonai, but sometimes Elohim. And in order to remind readers that they are to say Adonai instead of the divine name, the Masoretes took the vowel points of Adonai and they put that in the places of the divine name. Now, some Renaissance Christians wrongfully assuming that the vowels of Adonai, which are A, O, and A, from A, Do, 
nigh. These Renaissance Christians, assuming that the original vowels uh, were part of the divine name, they actually inserted them into the divine name, and therefore the A and the O and the A of Adonai became Yahovah, or the more popular Jehovah. Now it's been universally admitted that this was not the original intention of the Hebrew scribes. The Masoretes would surely not use the actual vowels to pronounce the divine name that they were trying to protect in their Koray reading. So, in order to protect what they considered sacred, it seems unlikely that the vowels of Adonai were actually something that could speak out the divine name that they were trying to protect. And so with that logic, it seems unlikely that A-class vowels, such as a Kometz or Patak, are originally used to pronounce the divine name in the first vowel, in the first syllable. The logic there is that Adonai has an A-class vowel. The Masoretes used Adonai and the vowels therein to place within the divine name in order to remind readers to say Adonai instead of the divine name. They would not have done that, according to this argument, if any of those letters would actually speak part of the divine name. So we can at least run along the suggestion that the first vowel is unlikely to be an A-class vowel. Furthermore, since Elohim was also spoken instead of the divine name, sometimes people would say Elohim, or they would just say God instead of the divine name, and Elohim has an E-class vowel for its first vowel, like a Tsere or a Segul, it's unlikely that an E-class vowel was originally part of the divine name, because the Masoretes would not want to suggest that readers say something that would potentially speak the divine name they're trying to protect. The logic is that with their sacred taboo, we can rule out A-class vowels and E-class vowels from the first syllable. Now, there are many theophostic names in Biblical Hebrew. A theophostic name is a name to where the particular god of the person is bound up within their name. So we could see quite a few of these in Hebrew. Let's just take, for example, Zephaniah. At the end of Zephaniah, we have the Yah there. Okay. And then at the beginning of Jonathan, which in Hebrew, um, Yohanatan. So the beginning of Jonathan has the Yod and the He, which is the beginning part of the divine name. And at the end of Zephaniah, we have the Yod and the He there. So these are theophostic names. And so we can actually see the Yod and the He together, and we can draw some inferences from that. Now the He is vocalized with a Shiva. A Shiva in Hebrew is a very weak uh sound, which really comes to a shorter eh sound, like yeah, yeah, like a soft yay sort of thing. 
the tendency with this particular short vowel, the shiva, is that it is not lengthened when it shows up at the end of words, like Zephaniah, the ya at the end of there. The shiva is such a weak vowel that it's not lengthened. It typically is so weak that it falls off and it gets replaced with A-class vowels, which is how we actually come up with the ya endings in Zephaniah. Originally, it was more of a weaker shiva. The weak vowel doesn't hold, so it gets replaced with a stronger vowel, a stronger A-class vowel, ya. So that explains the evidence for the ya reading. And it also explains the existence of the alternative form of God's name that appears in the poetic sections of Scripture. You probably have seen this. It's the shorter alternative version for the divine name, which is Yah, Y-A-H. You're probably familiar with the praise Hallelujah, which is just a verb, an imperative, which means praise Yah. It's actually two words there. Yah is the object of the imperative there. Now, technically speaking, Yah, those three English letters, is not a shortening of the divine name. It is actually an alternative form. It's a poetic alternative form. While the longer four consonants form, the divine name of yod heh vav -Heh, is surely the original. And this is actually confirmed when we look at some other known Semitic languages where divine names are never shortened. So yah is an alternative form, not a shortened form. That's an important technical point. Now, scholars have suggested that the opening syllable of the divine name is a yod and a hey, and so since it's not an A-class vowel and it's not an E-class vowel, it's likely to be a shiva, making the ye sound. At the end of the divine name, on the other hand, the final two letters, vav and hey, were consistently used with certain vowels, and this is true with all of these southern Canaanite dialects, specifically Hebrew, but also Moabite, so we can compare this with other relevant languages. And the natural ending with a vav and a he, especially in the case with the verb hayah, the verb that is proposed as the verb that has been lengthened to the divine name, the verb to be, this verb would end with a stronger E-class vowel. And this would result in the pronunciation of the four consonants of the divine name as Yahweh. And there is a short pause there between the two syllables. I know a lot of people just like to say Yahweh, but there is a short pause there. Yahweh. A short pause at that point. And we have confirmation of this particular reading by a variety of pieces of data. For example, Clement of Alexandria, writing in the 3rd century CE, actually transliterates the divine name as he knows it into Greek in his work Stomata, chapter 5, book 6, verse 34. And he uses the Greek letters Yota, Alpha, Omicron, Epsilon, Alpha, Yota, which translates out into Yahweh which sounds very much like Yahweh.
We also know from Exodus 3, 14 through 15, there seems to be a pun on the way that God describes himself as the I am, which really in Hebrew is I will be. So in this particular passage, it says that God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. That's Exodus 3, verses 14 through 15. And so the phrase I am in Hebrew is Ehie, which seems to be a play on words with the divine name Yahweh. So you can hear the play on words Ehie and Yahweh. So Ehie appears in verse 14, and the pun with the actual divine name appears in verse 15. Furthermore, the Hebrew and Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament records a Greek transcription relating to Exodus chapter 6 and verse 3. And this transcription has the following Greek letters, Yota, Alpha, Beta, and Epsilon, which gets translated out into Yahweh. Yahweh. And that sounds very much like Yahweh. So that's the evidence that has brought about the consensus among Hebrew linguists and grammarians that the divine name originally was intended to be understood as Yahweh. So people wanted to know, there's your evidence. Let's move on to a little bit more of the biblical data. So point number three is that Yahweh is the Father. This is a pretty clear teaching within the Hebrew Bible. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 6, it says, Do you thus repay Yahweh, O foolish and unwise people? Is not he your Father who has bought you? He has made you and established you. That's Deuteronomy 32, verse 6. Is he not your Father? the one who made you and established you. So the Father is the Creator. Furthermore, we can see in Jeremiah chapter 3, starting in the first verse, God said, If a husband divorces his wife, and she goes from him and belongs to another man, will he still return to her? Will not that land be completely polluted? But you are a harlot with many lovers. Yet you turn to me, declares Yahweh. Lift up your eyes, to the bare heights and sea, where have you not been violated? By the roads, you've sat for them like an Arab in the desert. You polluted a land with your harlotry and with your wickedness. Therefore, the showers have been withheld, and there has been no spring rain. You have a harlot's forehead. You refused to be ashamed. Have you not just now called to me my father? You are the friend of my youth. That's Jeremiah 3, verses 1 through 4. So God is describing himself in the covenant metaphor of marriage as the father. Not just as a male figure, but as the father. A few verses later, in Jeremiah three nineteen, it says, Then I said, How would I set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of the nations? And I said, you shall call me my father. Jeremiah 3.19. And lastly, we have in Malachi 1.6, 
it says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says Yahweh of hosts. So Yahweh compares a son to a father, a servant to the master, and he's like, look, I am that father. I am that master. And it indicates, by the way, that sons are lower than fathers. Sons are not co-equal to fathers. A father is clearly understood as superior to a son, and a master is superior to a servant. So Yahweh is the father, and he is the one who is superior to sons. So there is no co-equality of fathers and sons in the Hebrew Bible. And lastly, point number four, since we are talking about sons, let's look at how Yahweh is distinguished from the promised Messiah. Of course, Messiah comes into existence when he is born, but there is a promise of the Messiah, of the anointed king, of the Christ, in a variety of passages within the Hebrew Bible. So in Psalm 2, it begins by saying, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed. That's Psalm 2, verses 1 through 2. So we have Yahweh, and someone distinct from Yahweh, we have the anointed, the Mashiach, which in Greek is the Christ. And that anointed person, that anointed king, belongs to Yahweh. It is his anointed. So we know Yahweh is a single person because we have the single pronoun there, his. So the anointed person is not Yahweh. They are distinguished. We have Yahweh and the one whom Yahweh anoints. Psalm 110.1 is also a very easy passage to see this distinction. Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Psalm 110 verse 1. So there we have Yahweh speaking to someone else. That person is my Lord, and Yahweh says, sit at my right hand. My there, of course, is a singular pronoun. So Yahweh is a single person. Yahweh is one person, and this person sitting at Yahweh's right hand is obviously someone distinct from Yahweh. If someone is sitting at your right hand, you have two persons, two distinct beings, two distinct persons, and that second person is distinguished from Yahweh. It's not Yahweh. In Jeremiah 30, verse 9, we have the promise of the Messiah being the Davidic king. It says, They shall serve Yahweh their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. So Yahweh is their God and David is their king. This is the promised David, the Messianic David, the Davidic Messiah, which we know is Jesus. So there, the Davidic king is distinguished from Yahweh. Yahweh is described with singular references. I will raise David their king up. And lastly, in Ezekiel 34, verse 24, we have a similar promise of the coming Davidic king. Where God says, And I, Yahweh, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, Yahweh, have spoken. Clearly, Yahweh is distinguished from the Messiah, who is the lineal descendant of David. 
So there you have it. Four major points about Yahweh. We learned that Yahweh is the creator. We learned that Yahweh is very likely to be the way that the divine name was originally pronounced in Hebrew. We've also demonstrated that Yahweh is the Father, not the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but the Father alone. And Yahweh is distinguished from the promised Messiah. So thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Join us next week as we look at Elohim. Very interesting noun to refer to the God of Israel. Please look forward to our next episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we promote the important truths about the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. You can subscribe for free on iTunes or YouTube. You can support our channel by giving us an honest review and by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. But if you'd like to offer a donation, you can find the link to PayPal in the notes linked to this particular episode. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.